And I tell you, for those here today who always thought that their pastor could walk on water, I did it today. I've been watching my lake for two weeks, and I ventured out about two inches, took a picture so it looked like I was further out, but I actually, I've been testing it all week long with my dog, and my dog survived, so I went out there and I said, let me take a picture, make sure no one can see that I'm only like two inches away from land. So it looked like it was dangerous, but I actually did it. I had to do it this morning. Awesome. Hey, I just have a question. Well, a lot of them actually. But is anyone ready for some word today? Is anyone ready for the breath of God to blow through this place? Yeah, me too. Uh, Guys, I got to tell you, I am so excited about our, our conversation this morning I mean, if the Father, if the Son, if the, if the Spirit, if they, if they have their way in us today, look out. It's just going to be, I mean, ripples will start in this place and will echo out into eternity, changing lives, changing forevers, bringing our God and Father great joy and pleasure. Okay, let's do this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. The word was what? The word was God. He continues, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Through him all things were made. I mean, come on. I mean, just try to attempt to let that sink in for a moment. All things were made by him. And nothing was made That has not been made by him. What the world did I just say? All things were made. Praise God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was what? Was life. In him was what? Come on, it's a new year. Give me some love. Be here all day. My wife's not here. I'm checking my time. All right. In him was life. In him. And if you want to find life, you're only going to find life in him. I'll tell you what, in 2008, maybe you should stop looking for life and other things and other people because real life is only found in one place. It's found in him. Uh, turn to the person to your right and left, look them in the eye and tell them the life you're looking for is found in him. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, the darkness has not and never will overcome his light. Okay, so this word that was with God and and was God is some pretty serious stuff. I mean, he created all things. He shines, and the, the darkness cannot overcome him, and he is the source of all life. And then down to verse 14, John says this. The Word became flesh. Don't let these words get old because you heard them so many times. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. In case you don't know, uh, we are really into grace at Maple Grove. Amen? Because we all need it. And in fact, in January of 2016, we, we did a series, one of my favorites, you know, Grace is Greater Than. 
Grace is greater than our mistakes. It's greater than our sin. It's greater than our hurts. It's greater than our weaknesses. It's greater than our circumstances. And it was during that series I experienced was perhaps one of the most powerful moments ever in the church service where at the end of the service, a, a bunch of people grabbed a piece of chalk and, and they wrote their own grace is greater than declarations. I think we have a picture of that up there. I mean, there are people walked up there and said, grace is greater than my anger. It's greater than my failures. It's greater than my bitterness. It's greater than my depression. Greater than my insecurities. Greater than my suicidal attempts. Greater than my eating disorder. Greater than my broken relationships. Greater than my sexual abuse. Grace is greater than, and grace is still greater than. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, 2,000 years ago, God put on flesh, and he lived among us. I mean, think about that. Yes, God in the person of the Son was here. He brought God near. I mean, people like you and I heard him. They touched him. They saw him. Uh, they shared meals with him. I mean, if you lived back then and you heard that Jesus was coming to your town, would you would you go out to hear him? I think you, you would because you're here today listening to some guy talk about him and talk for him. Question, why did Jesus come? Why is he here? Why did the eternal one put on flesh and invade this planet with grace and truth? I mean, seriously, what did he hope to accomplish? How did, he, how did Jesus want the world to be different after he left? You know what the awesome thing is? We don't have to speculate. Because Jesus answers that question for us. Check this out. In Luke 19, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to the cross, he took the time to bring salvation to the house of a guy living in Jericho, who was probably the most hated guy in the entire city. His name was Zacchaeus, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked into that tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, because I'm going to your house today. Of... All right, that didn't work. <laughs> and listen, once God brought salvation to him, Jesus said to those who were questioning and kind of upset that Jesus would actually say somebody like that, you know, like, Jesus, we don't get it. Why would you bring salvation to someone who's so messed up, who's so sinful, who's so full of failures, who's so broken? And Jesus says, why? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this morning, I, I want to talk about what it means for you and I to make the main thing the main thing in 2018. And listen, it must be the main thing for me, the main thing for you, and the main thing for our church, because if the main thing is not the main thing, then no thing really matters. But before we go there, I, I want to tell you um, where we're heading, some upcoming conversations uh, in the new year. On January 21st, we're kicking off a new series um, called The End of Me, Where Real Life Begins. Um, it's based on a book by Kyle Eidelman. And I don't know about you, but me has been my biggest problem forever. And it's time for me to go so that real life can begin. 
It's a study on the Beatitudes. It's going to change some lives in this room, guaranteed, and some lives that are not even here yet. And then, whenever that series is over, we're going to do a series called Understanding the Bible. Like, how do we get the Bible? How's the Bible put together? Right? Um, What does it mean? How do we understand the Bible correctly? All right? That's going to be a fun series. And I do want to mention, you know, last week we... You guys had some life work and, um, from our sermon series about not letting another year slip away, but grabbing it, right? So we've got to go, we've got to risk, we've got to adapt, right? We've got to believe. And, and uh, I don't know about you, the sheet I took looks just like this one right here, all right? I didn't do it, and I decided not to cram on Saturday night so I could say, guys, have you done yours yet? You filthy pagans, you know, look at me, I've done mine. And I decided to be honest, that, hey, I didn't get to it yet. But it's pretty important. I mean, listen to some of these questions. You know, under the go, what do you need to leave behind as you begin 2018? Another question, under go. Where in your life do you need to align your intentions with the correct direction so that you actually end up where you say you want to go? Risk. What new thing do you sense God is wanting, wanting you to, what new risk do you sense God wanting you to take in 2018? but you're not sure about it because the outcome is uncertain. A risk. In whatever your life, do you need to trust God and do what he says, even though you do not want to do it, but just because he says so. Adapt. What circumstances do you find yourself in as the year 2018 begins that require you to change and to adapt? I'd encourage you to fill that out, right? Ask me next week if I fill mine out, all right? And ask me if I crammed on Saturday night. Hopefully I didn't. Hopefully I, I spent some time praying about it. And next week we're going to talk about you know, what I think is one of the most powerful stories, uh, events in the Old Testament, it's found in uh, the book of 1 Kings. But let's pray. God, we love you. And God, this is the first uh, Sunday of the new year. And God, I just pray that you'd be with us, that your spirit would move, that our hearts would be open. God, that you enable me to, to speak in a way that brings you honor and glory and draws your people closer to your heart, including me. And Father, forgive me for my sins. They are many. In Jesus' name, amen. I really need you guys to lean in this morning. Because the conversation we're about to have is the most important conversation any church or any group of Jesus followers will ever have. Are you tracking with me? Now, understand my goal, my aim, my intent today, the first Sunday of the year 2018 is laser focused. I want to align our hearts to the heart of God. I want his passion to become our passion. I want us to want, I want us to most want what he wants most. I want the heartbeat of this church. I want your heartbeat and my heartbeat to be in sync with the heartbeat of the Lord of all creation, to be the heartbeat with Jesus, the word who became flesh. Question, if those things actually happened, if we as a church, if we as a people most wanted what God wants most, if our hearts, if our concerns and our passions were fully aligned and in sync with his, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Look three people in the eye and tell them that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. Again, this conversation is called the main thing in 2018. 
And, and the way I want to attack our conversation is by unpacking four statements. God's all-consuming passion, the early church's passion, our all-consuming passion, and praying for one. Now, the word passion comes from the Latin word pazio, and I said that right. I looked it up online, pazio, right, which means to suffer. Now, understand, when you're passionate about something, you are willing to what? You're willing to suffer for it. I mean, whether it's hunting or fishing or sports or boating or hiking or running, music, collecting, whatever, when people are passionate about something, they have concluded that cost, time, money, weather, and comfort are all irrelevant because when you're passionate about something, you are willing to suffer for it. Question, what are you, what are you passionate about? And listen, passionate is an amazing thing. It's a motivating thing. It's an inspiring thing. In fact, nothing great ever happens without it. Now, understand the driving force between all great art, music, literature, drama, architecture, technological advances, relationships, churches, and ministry, the driving force, it's passion. Passion is what propels athletes to train for years, hours every day, to make the team, win the medal, to lift the Lombardi, go Patriots, right? And and, uh, passion pushes scientists to discover new cures for diseases. So what is God's all-consuming passion? I mean, what, what was God and is God willing to suffer for? Now, there's countless, there's countless passages of scriptures that talk about God's all-consuming passion. I mean, we see his passion dotting the landscape of scripture from Genesis to, to Revelation. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve take the bite of that forbidden fruit, choosing their way, uh, choosing what they want to do, their will over God's. In Genesis 3.15, we read, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And we see God's passion boldly declared in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb was slain from the creation of the world. Yeah, that's right. God created the world even though he knew, right? Even though he knew that his son would have to die, God still created the world even though he knew his son had to suffer. And we clearly see God's passion in those famous words spoken 2,000 years ago to a guy named Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I know you've heard those 26 words before. But take a moment to, to really try to plunge the depth of their meaning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Does that, those 26 words, do they reveal something about God's passion, about what consumes God, about what God is willing to suffer for? And we see God's all-consuming passion in the words that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and Sinners were all gathered around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Two groups of people, right? Sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and teachers of the law. Question, 
Why do you think the sinners and tax collectors gathered around Jesus that day? Because they were hungry. Because they are thirsty. Because they are hoping to hear words of life from the author of life. And why were the religious leaders muttering? And here's a definition of muttering. To complain or grumble indistinctly or in a low tone. Anybody ever mutter? Any guys married in here? Right? I get busted. I, I need to work on my muttering, right? You know, because it's like, what did you say? I did say anything, right? I'll be muttering down the hallway, muttering in the bathroom. I can mutter everywhere, right? And uh, so they're muttering in the low tone, but they want Jesus to hear them. And they're muttering, right? And why are they muttering? Why are they so upset? I think for at least two reasons, maybe more. But one is because Jesus wasn't hanging out with them and giving them gold stars for being such good rule keepers. And instead, every Friday night, Jesus was eating wings with a bunch of sinners. And another thing I think that upset them is that Jesus was redefining what it meant to follow God. And they did not approve of his definition. You see, what these religious leaders did not understand about God or God's one and only son is that people, regardless of their race, education, color, looks, economic status, their past, or their present condition, mattered to God. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one to them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And we have here is a lost sheep. And let, let me ask you, what do you think the odds are of the sheep making it back home on his own? Not too good, right? You know why? Because sheep are not very smart. Like they're lacking in the gray area department. They have a low IQ. They never pass one single SOL, and they cannot even spell S-A-T, right? One writer has this to say about sheep. Sheep are notorious creatures of habit. Remember, we're sheep. Left to themselves, they'll follow the same trail until it turns into a rut. You in a rut? Graze the same hills until they become desert wastelands. Pollute the ground until it's corrupt with disease and parasites. Yeah, sheep are not bright animals, and we're sheep. And so what is the only hope that this sheep has? That his shepherd will go out and find him, right? That's his only hope. That's the only hope he has. And guys... That's the only hope that we have as well. And why would the shepherd do this? Because the lost sheep matters to him. See, the point Jesus is driving home is that lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. And throughout the rest of this message, when I say lost people, you're going to say matter to God. Lost people Lost people. Understand, you will never lock eyes with anyone who does not matter, who is not of infinite worth to God. Now, now, 
What do you think is going through the minds of the sinners and tax collectors as they hear Jesus speak these words? No way. No way, Jesus. I cannot matter that much to the Father. Not me. Not after all that I've done. I'm just, I'm just a mess. I'm just a broken mess. I'm not worthy of his love. And then Jesus, I think with a smile on his face and a tear in his eye, would say, oh, yes, you are. In fact, the Father has had party plates and cups and napkins and a banner with your name on it ever since he carefully knit you in your mother's womb, just waiting for the day when you would surrender your life to him and come back home. Because lost people, that was awful. Lost people, there you go. And y'all get it. I'm with you. And it's hard to really, really believe. But God's all-consuming passion is you. God's all-consuming passion is you. And it's you. And it's me. And it's the person to your right and left. It's that annoying neighbor. It's that annoying coworker. It's the person behind the counter at Food Line or Chick-fil-A. They're God's all-consuming passion. Why? Because lost people, lost people, understand, lost people put God on a passionate and relentless pursuit. Question, have you ever lost a person? Now, one of my scariest times as a parent was in January of 2008 in Nanjing, China. I think we have a picture up there. Uh, We were in Nanjing adopting Gentile. Guess this would be what? Wow. Great. Wow. Ten years ago. Wow. May Lee was four and a half. Gentile was two and a half. I have permission to say this. I've talked to my daughter. Okay. I have permission. Got to do that. I forget that sometimes and I get in trouble. But anyhow, we're, we're there and we're having breakfast. And we're at the seventh floor of this hotel downtown in the city, in Nanjing, very large city. I don't speak the language. I don't look like many people there. And, and, and we're done eating, about to get on the elevator, and Maylee went in first, and I saw the elevator door shut, and I heard her scream, Baba. And I freaked out. And we were separated for 10 to 15 minutes. I was terrified. And I can tell you, here's what I didn't do. Hey, we just got you in towel. We got three kids at home. No, I mean, I would have never stopped looking. Why? Because she's my daughter. And I'm her father. I'm her dad. And that's what God does for us. He just can't stop looking. You see, the Bible is a story of God's unrelenting and passionate pursuit, unwilling to suffer anything pursuit of a prodigal people. And that would be you and I. And it's a pursuit that began in the garden Continue throughout the pages of the Old Testament and caught up to us at the cross and continues to this very day despite our sin and rebellion. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Do you agree that God's all-consuming passion is lost people? Can I get a witness? Amen. 
What about the early church? Before Jesus went back home, he wanted to make sure that his church, his people understood what their mission was. Matthew 28, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority, that's a lot of authority, and heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Well, what is the, what is the mission of the church, of the Jesus follower to, to make disciples? And how do we do that? Well, according to Jesus, our commander-in-chief, step one is that we, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and, and the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, in the name of, is significant, right? It's a term used in the Greek marketplace, and it means a transfer of ownership. You see, when you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, guess who owns you now? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then step two is what? For making this up, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, obey is not a four-letter word. It's just being a disciple. And see, we obey not to be made right with God. We obey because we are right with God. Get it? Good. That was their mission. And when you look at the book of Acts, which traces the history of the church, you see that they went after that mission like a hungry dog after a stake. I mean, from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus reminds them of their mission, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, to the last words of the book of Acts, bowling without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in nearly 1,000 verses in between, you see a church that was obsessed with the good news, obsessed with seeking and saving the lost. And when this passion was unleashed in Jerusalem in Acts 2, it became a mighty tsunami. And nothing, nothing, threats, trouble, hardships, famine, sword, danger, persecution, or even death, nothing could stop, nothing could stand against the powerful waves of this gospel passion as it reached to the ends of the earth, turning the world upside down, bringing down the Roman Empire without raising a shield or lifting a sword. Seriously, it really happened. Why? Because they were consumed with the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost because lost people. <laughs> I tried to give you a heads up. <laughs> now, there are many snapshots of this all-consuming passion I could in Acts. I love the book of Acts. I just have time to share two. First is in Acts chapter 8. A great wave of persecution began that day after Stephen was killed, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Imagine what that was like. Imagine this coming Wednesday that you have to leave everything, your job, your house, your cars, your stuff, and all you can take is what you can fit into your car. And you know pretty much you may never come back here again. That was the reality for the Christians in Jerusalem. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. How did they respond to persecution, to this hurt, to this pain of losing and suffering so much? Did they quit? Did they say, hey, 
God, can, can we have a timeout for mission until you know, things get better? Is that what they did? God, we, we need a break for this mission. Life, life is too hard for your mission. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. I loved it. I love it. I'm challenged by it. No matter what happened to them, the mission of Jesus fueled their lives. Because lost people. <laughs> and, and, and here's one, one more passage that is so powerful. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He's got a price on his head. People tell him, don't go. They're going to kill you. And Paul says this. My life is worth nothing. <laughs> that I, I, I was Greek. Every time I break down into Greek, sorry. Uh, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Wow. Could you imagine saying that? I, I consider 2018 worth nothing to me. E even if I get that promotion, even if I pay off the debt, even if all my relationships just suddenly turn to be great and fantastic, even if I have great business success and, and, and family success and career success, it'll be worth nothing to me unless I tell others the good news about Jesus. Would you agree that lost people are the passion of the early church? Can I get a witness? What should be our, my, your, Alcazima passion? I mean, what should we be suffering for and be willing to suffer for? Where should we be investing the best of our time, our talents, our energy, our emotions, and our resources? True or false? Here's a true or false question. The all-consuming passion of the church and every Jesus follower should be seeking and saving the lost, should be making disciples. True or false? What do you all think? Now, I'm not surprised by our answer, right? However, if a totally objective person were to simply look at our lives, look at my life, look at your life, and they don't, they don't know anything about us, all they're giving is access to our calendar, access to our bank account, access to our social media. And when they look at all that, would they conclude by how we spend our time, our energy, our emotions, our money, that seeking and saving the lost, the mission of Jesus is our all-consuming passion. In his book, The Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren talks about a survey done by a guy who asked churches, this question, why does the church exist? And you can see here's some of the responses. To, to take care of my family and my needs, 86%. Hey, that's why the church is here. It's here for me, right, because it's my church. It's not Jesus' church. It's mine. It's here for me. And to win the world for Jesus, how many? 11%. You see, when you and I are saved and we're adopted in God's family, we, we, we join the family business, and what is the family business? Making disciples because lost people, lost people matter to God. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, 
what's business and how's business, right? Anybody ever eat at this place right here? I like that. We go there. We shred the bread, man. I'm serious. My, my kids, we take down 10 loaves, I think, before the meal even comes, right? We say, hey, don't just bring one. We want two at a time, right? And they're, they're gone. They're gone. I mean, May Lee can take out probably four herself, right? I mean, we love that bread. It's good. And so imagine you are the GM of the, of the Outback, and the CEO of the company is coming to check things out. And you show them the remodels you did in the bathroom and how you updated the kitchen and, hey, we put this fireplace here and check out what we did to the tables in the booth and look at this wall of all our smiling and employees. And that's all good stuff. And he says, hey, tell me how your food sales are going. You say, well, we really haven't sold any food. How do you think he'd respond? See, the mission, the driving force of the church, uh, the main thing for our lives must be seeking and saving the lost because lost people matter to God. So let's get real. Why isn't that our all-consuming passion? Let me suggest three reasons. Number one, we get distracted by other lesser things. Now, now, some things that distract us are destructive, right? But there's other things that are not destructive. They're just much lesser. And, and they distract us and they move us to invest more of ourselves, more of our time, our energy, our resources, our talents, our thoughts, our plans, our emotions in them rather than seeking and saving the loss. And we get distracted. Have you ever been distracted by a lesser passion? We've, re- we've redefined what it means to be on mission. See, somehow, we, and when I say we, believe when I tell you, I, I'm in that we too. But somehow we've convinced ourselves that we can be committed to Christ without being committed to the mission that he gave us. Understand, worship, Bible study, sermons, men's groups, conferences, women's groups, children's ministry, youth ministry, serving, workdays, life groups, Bible reading, giving, etc., etc., etc. I understand if they're not driving us to and resulting in us seeking and saving the lost, then what's the point? What's the point? You see, we cannot be committed to Christ or his church if we're not seeking and saving the lost because lost people matter to God. You see why the religious got so ticked off at Jesus and is redefining things? He says, no, this is it. This is what I care about. This is what matters to me. Now understand, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven, not because I preached a good sermon, not because 30 people joined our life group, Right? Not because you finished another Bible reading plan. Not because you started tithing. No, but because of what? Because someone that was lost is now found. Now, I'm not saying those things are not good or needed. They are good and they are needed. Outback should have tables to sit at, right? And they need bathrooms and they need smiling employees. But it it must all be driving us to, right? It must. Seeking and serving Seeking and saving the lost because lost people matter to God. 
A third reason is that we have an enemy who does not want us to seek and save the lost. Bo Chancy, pastor of Manchester Christian Church, writes the following in his book, Pray for One. The enemy's number one tactic is to get the church to focus on anything other than the mission of Jesus. If he can get us to fight on a false front, then he wins the battle no matter how valiantly or powerfully we struggle. Fighting the wrong fight is actually worse than not fighting at all. The enemy's number one tactic is to get the church to focus on anything other than the mission of Jesus. So sad, but yet so true. Final point, praying for one. In April of 2016, we did a message series and we introduced a simple prayer. Lord, please give me someone to share your love with today. Amen. Now, Manchester Christian Church, where Bo Chanchi preaches, you know, they prayed that prayer consistently and passionately for five years. And the church grew from 1,200 to 3,600, and 2,000 people were baptized into Christ. Now, we're not a 1,200-member church, but I can do some cross-multiplication. And if God moved in us, moved in you and I the same way, in the next five years, there'll be 700 people around here and about 383 people would be baptized in the Christ. Do you think God would do some rejoicing in that? Do you think God would be getting kind of pumped up and excited about that? And so I, I want to challenge you today to begin to pray that prayer or to make a commitment to pray that prayer again with passion. I fall into the second category. So the main thing will be your main thing in 2018. You can go to the PrayForOne.com website. They, they have what I think is one of the best devotionals ever read, and I'm going to do it again. Um, you can download it. It's free. They have a 41-day devotional uh, about this passion of God for lost people. I, I, I want to just read a couple quotes here. And like I said, if, if we get this, I mean, God is, we so excited that there's like people right now who are, who are lost will be found, right? And you know some already, right? You live next to them, you work by them. They always seem to be running the cash register whenever you're going through Chick-fil-A or Food Line, you know. They root for the same team as you or an opposite team and you kind of play along and, and joke with them. Just ask God, he writes, to give you one person to share his love with. Pray that he would place someone, anyone in your path to share the gospel with. As often as you pray, pray for one. Allow your primary prayers to move beyond prayers for self into prayers for one. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Instead of just praying for promotions, protection, and provision, plead first for one. Bombard the throne with passionate prayers for one. Drive your God crazy with a zealous request for one. Approach the throne of grace with extreme confidence that, you are, that what you are requesting is the express will of Christ as you pray for one. What occurs when we pray for one is that our entire outlook on life changes. Instead of viewing people as nuisances, we see them as the one. People are no longer our competition or our enemies. They are objects of grace waiting to be found. This is repentance at its finest. Repent is a wonderful word that means much more than just not sinning. 
Repent means to adopt a new worldview. Praying for one will produce a new worldview as you see everything through the lens of Jesus and his mission to seek and save the lost. Scripture instructs us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. When we do this, we know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Not only will we know it, we will want it too. Praying for one will change your foundational purpose for living. Life will suddenly spring into life through the sincerity of this simple prayer. This is in your notes. It'll be on the screen. When you want what Jesus wants, lost people found, life finally makes sense. Is your life not making sense right now? After years and years of being, walking through a church doors, and the joy of spiritual reproduction consumes you. As our hearts change, we find that we're not too busy to speak to a neighbor or stay late with a Stay up late with a coworker. We find that our heads are up and that we make eye contact with people because we never know who will be the one. On the screen, every person you encounter is a potential one. Every appointment is divine. Every conversation is a unique opportunity to share God's love. Every day has a purpose and each moment is filled with mission. No day is wasted because we arise in the morning with a true sense of mission and purpose. The first words on our lips are, give me one. The gospel becomes each day's destination. Praying for one puts us into position to be fully used by God. This stuff gets addictive. You get the first one, you can't stop. You have to have another and another and another. King, the growth becomes exponential. One becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16, and so on and so on. As each one begins to pray for one, two, because lost people matter to God. Because lost people are God's all-consuming passion. And, and I, I want to give you a picture of someone who had a passion to save people. But this was in a physical sense. You know, but may we have the same passion as Desmond Doss had in World War II in Okinawa. There's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Um, he was a conscientious objector, didn't carry a weapon, but he was a medic. And in the scene you see here, you know, everybody else is retreated. He's up on top of this cliff, this ridge, and there's a bunch of men, his fellow men, who are dying. Just watch this. Whew. May that be us. I, I, I want to be that. I'm not. I want to be that. I want to have that passion, not just to save someone physically. That's awesome. He deserved a medal. What an inspiration but I want to be that in 2018. I don't want to get distracted. I want to read the Christ. I don't want the enemy to get me off track and off focus. I want God to get, give me one, give me one, and give me one more. Maple Grove, let's make the main thing, the main thing in 2018, so that God will have to put on his dancing shoes and rejoice in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love you, and, and God, thank you Thank you for suffering. Thank you for your passion, your willingness to, to suffer for us. Suffer for me. While I'm a sinner, you did it, and I'm still a sinner. And God, I pray, Lord, that, that, that we will develop a passion like you have for lost people, God. God, forgive me, forgive us for our apathy, God. I pray that we will pray for one. Man, we'll go to that website. We'll download that devotion. We'll get real, get honest, and get passionate, Lord. So you can give us just one. May that picture of, 
you know, Desmond Dross just lowering those men and all night long, Lord, agony and pain, but each time wanting you to give them one more. May that be our passion for lost people. In Jesus' name, amen.